0: Today's topic is uh, Shalom Bayit. Shalom Bayit means peace in the house. Peace is the last thing we pray for in our daily prayers. Every day when we pray, the last thing we mention is Oseh Shalom B'Ramav, the one who makes peace in the high places. who Seh Shalom Aleinu, he'll make peace upon us. I'll call amen. and all Israel and let us say Amen. That's how we end off our prayers every day, three times a day. That's also how we end off the Brikat Amazon, the race after meals. Also we finish with a prayer for peace. Peace has been one of the primary values in Judaism. It's a Very, very important uh, value. It's also the prophecy for the end of days. The prophecy for the end of days is the wolf will live with the lamb there's going to be peace amongst the nations. The United Nations have got the Isaiah Wall in, uh, in New York, outside the United Nations Plaza. You have the Wall of Isaiah, where Isaiah was one of the Jewish prophets, predicting peace in the end of days. So peace is a tremendous value. The Israelis today are willing to give up everything for peace. They just want peace. They've had enough of war. So peace is a supreme value. Jewish tradition visualizes God as seeking peace in the heavenly spheres between Israel and the nations, and especially between husband and wife. The Torah regards a person who establishes peace in his house as a person who has peace in his dominion. So Peace is a primary function. Domestic harmony is prescribed by the rabbis in the Talmud. The Talmud says a very interesting idea as a person should spend less than his means on clothes, beyond his means in honoring his wife and children. So a person, a man on himself, should spend less than his means on his wife and children, should spend more than his means. So then he has to listen to her. <laughs> the constant insistence upon the value of the family as a social unit for the propagation of domestic and religious values, and the significant fact that the accepted Hebrew word for marriage is Kiddushin. Kiddushin means sanctification. When a person gets married, it's called Kiddushin, which means sanctification. Where is holiness in Jewish law? And the answer is holiness is in the home. Today, why is Judaism failing miserably? And the answer is because we transferred the holiness from the home into the synagogue. So in the home, anything goes. Want to be religious? Go to synagogue. Whereas the opposite really is true. The holiness is the home. The home is the bulwark of holiness uh, for Jews. And today right, we talk about uh, a home which is based on truth, is based on faith. Um, when we talk to a married couple, that is what we bless them with. That they should build a home based on truth and of faith. So the home really is this basic building block of society. And today, in America, we mentioned less than 25% of all uh, households are traditional nuclear units of husband and wife and children, less than 25% today. That's a falling number, and that's one of the causes for great concern that the society is going to fall apart. Fabrics of society is going to fall apart. In The Jewish way of life, the family was always considered the minor building block of society. If the family units were strong, you could assume the the society was strong. If the family unit was weak, you can assume the society is falling apart around us. The home is also a major factor for moral purity. If two people are faithful to each other, that's a great source of moral purity. The rabbis say that where there is peace between husband and wife, God dwells between them. So a lot of spirituality in the home comes from the fact that there is peace and harmony in the home. And something tangible a person can feel where there's goodwill on both sides. You go into the house, you feel good, you feel you feel at peace with oneself. But as fighting constant fighting and bickering, there's no peace for anyone, and there can be no spirituality as well without peace. Perhaps the strength of the family bond is seen most in the fact that among Jews, and it's always been the case, divorce is one of the easiest procedures. It's interesting. From the earliest of times. The Torah prescribes a mitzvah of divorce. Very strange. Uh, We're talking about 3,500 years ago, written into the five books of Moses. It says when a man decides to divorce his wife for a certain reason, he will write her a book of kritut, of cutting off, cutting the bonds, and give it to her hand, and that's it. That's the whole ceremony. It's a very easy ceremony. 13 lines have got to be written down. It takes about half an hour to write. Let's give it into her hand, and that's it. It's over, the bond is over. Okay, but technically it's a very easy, all you have to do is her name, his name, and the place. That's it, three things. And then you can write it, it yeah, takes half an hour to write. Okay, that's geography, everyone knows geography. Yes, you had a question? Um, but in, the, in terms of Torah law, in terms of Torah law, it's a very easy procedure. It's a very, very simple procedure. Um, so that's one of the ironies of the fact is in Jewish law it's a very easy procedure. Today, with all the civil law and with all the harassments of going to the lawyers and paying the bills, it's a tremendously difficult procedure. It uh, wears down the nerves. But technically, in Jewish law, we just go by religious law, it's meant to be a very simple procedure. Just a matter of a document given into uh, transfer of a document, just like marriage is a transfer of a ring so also divorce in Judaism is a transfer of a document. Right. Just like the ring in the wedding has to be given and received, so also divorce is no, it's just the same. Backwards, we're, re- we're releasing the marriage ties, we're doing a similar procedure by releasing, and releasing the marriage ties. So even though it was one of the easiest processes, in practice it was, until recent times, a rarity. Even though really technically it's so easy, in practice, it very rarely happened. We're talking about a rarity, and the answer is because the bond was deeper and harder to break. And we're going to discuss what makes the bond so easy to break today, and we're going to discuss how society has changed. I'm going to discuss that in the course of uh, this class. The view that great is peace that reigns between husband and wife has legal and moral consequences as well it's interesting, there's a big debate amongst the philosophers is a lie absolutely wrong or is a lie something which is a lesser evil? in Jewish law it's interesting, We find a classic example is in the Bible the Bible talks about God promising Sarah a son, she was 90 years old, Actually, she was 89, she had a child when she was 90 and Sarah says, laughed, and she says how can I have a child, my husband is too old She's blaming it on the virility of her husband. So God goes to Abraham and he says, "Abraham, why did your wife laugh and say that she was too old?" So God Himself changes the wording of what happened, for the sake it's, the rabbis say for the sake of peace between husband and wife. As a person is allowed, we see to tell a lie for the sake of peace between husband and, li- and wife. We find is an interesting midrash. The midrash talks about Aaron the high priest. Why was he chosen as high priest? Because everyone loved him. He was a very likable person. He made peace between man and his fellow man. How? He says if he saw two people fighting, the day after he would go to one of them and say, you know, the other party is very sorry he did this to you and he wants to make friends with you. And then he would go to the other party and say the same thing. Total lie, total fabrication. For the sake of peace, a person is allowed to tell a lie. So it has great legal and moral foundations. We tell a person you're allowed to tell a lie for the sake of peace. So for the sake of peace, for the sake of peace, I don't think they based it on this Talmud, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: they, knew it but they had a
0: different logic, a different kind of logic. The Russians are good liars anyway, but uh, they go, they'll tell lies for anything. Okay. The practice of lighting candles on Friday night. We you know the source, the source is a, a ruling to create a p- sense of peace and harmony in the house. In those days, they never had electric lights. Uh, a person had to spend money great deal of money in those days. People were poor. To have a candle was a sign of wealth already. People had to invest in a candle once a week. People would go to bed when it got dark. They couldn't afford lights. They couldn't afford oil. The rabbis made an institute this law of buying oil for Friday night. Why? want to have peace and harmony. If there's no light in the house, it might cause fights. People might trip over things. be in a bad mood. I can't see anyone. I'm in a bad mood. They made this law of lighting... On Friday night. People don't know the source of these laws. The source is based on harmony in the house. The, idea is the only reason is for Shalom Bayit, um, expressly for the purpose of promoting an atmosphere of warmth and peace in a holy day. The Talmud queries where there are insufficient funds to light both the Hanukkah candles and the Shabbat candles. So a person has limited resources. He, d- he doesn't have enough money to buy both the Hanukkah candles and the Shabbat candles. Which one takes precedence? And it answers the Shabbat candles take precedence. Why? Because Shabbat candles are there for promoting peace, whereas the Hanukkah candles just symbolize a miracle which happened many years ago. So, peace we find is one of the staple uh, ingredients for a uh, family unit. There's a ritual which is a very strange ritual, which appears to us to be a very strange ritual, the, to- the Torah mentions of a man who suspects his wife of infidelity. What happens? So in, in Jewish law, there's a whole section in the Bible which deals with this case. A man suspects his wife of infidelity. Uh, he suspects her with good reason, without good reason. The marriage is falling apart. So the Torah tells us, you write the Kohen writes God's name on a piece of paper, he puts it into some liquid, and the woman drinks it. If she is innocent, she will have a child from a husband within a year, guaranteed. But what happens? God's name is erased. By doing this, put God's name in the liquid. It's the third commandment, the ten commandments, not to erase God's name, not to take God's name in vain, and not to erase God's name. Here we are allowed to erase God's name for the sake of marital uh, bliss, for the sake of getting the parties together we find how great it is for a person to make peace between husband and wife that it's even allowed to erase God's name um, in order to make peace at home. The rabbis ruled that a husband has no right to exact from his wife an accounting under oath of where the household expenses go. As the man comes along and says, I demand to know where my money is going. you think <laughs> This is a Gemara Talmud in Ketubot. And page 86, Amud Bet. Page 86, uh, side 2. The rabbi said, either the relationship is a relationship of trust or it was better to be terminated. There has to be trust in the relationship. So trust is an important ingredient to make peace in the house. There has to be trust on both sides. Very, very important. A person is advised, and time and again, advises in the tractate which deals with divorces. So the person should not run their household on fear. There's fear in the house and this is one of the techniques which are very hard to, as a new husband or new wife. You have to learn how to do these things. How do you learn trust? Who are you talking to on the phone? Someone asked me the other day. Who, who? My wife was talking to an old friend on the phone. Should I be suspicious? So what should I do? What should you do? Is there trust or there's no trust? So you ask her, um, before a person sets foot into the marriage, they should know, can I rely on this person? Obviously that's the first degree. It's just like entering a business partnership. You don't enter a business partnership if you have doubts of the other person's character. So that's a pre-marriage. Once a person jumps into the marriage, he has to jump in with trust. The trust must be a prior requirement of getting married. A person is advised not to create a household of fear where everyone is scared and trembling of them why this is going to lead to lies and lack of trust why if the husband comes home in a furious mood demands to know everything what happened this what happened that and people are scared they're going to pacify the person tell him a lie pacify him this is not a grounds for a stable relationship so going crazy at home and causing fear in the house ruling a house with an iron fist is definitely not conducive to love and is not conducive to a stable relationship. It is apparent from the Torah that the institution of polygamy, which was legalized at that time, was frowned upon because of this issue of having peace at home. The rabbis called the second wife a tsara. Tsara comes from the word tsarot, for trouble, pain. The second wife was called a pain because it would lead to lack of peace at home. And that's why, about a 1,000 years ago, Rabbi Gershom came along and abolished this uh, idea of polygamy which mm-hmm. is still rampant in Muslim countries. You the, you and you find like it never worked. Right. It never worked. Uh, those uh, The relationships never worked. Right. It never worked. The patriarchs Abraham and Jacob who had more than one wife had domestic strife. The prophet Samuel was born in such a house. Mm-hmm. They could hardly be more Shalom Bayit, peace in the house, when there is more than one mistress of the household. And the Torah proves this by its description of the relationship between two wives as sarah, as a trouble, pain, and affliction, suggesting that two wives could only bring brie- grief to each other and to the home. Husbands, because of Shalom Bayit, were urged to, e- to heed to their wives' counsel. Find in the, Torah, the Torah says, when Abraham had a quandary, His wife demanded that his first son by another woman would be thrown out of the house. He was a bad influence on her son. He says, No, he's my son. I love him. How can I throw him out of the house? So he's arguing with his wife. So, as a mediator, he went to God. He says, God, what shall I do? God says, Whatever Sarah tells you, you listen to her voice. So, as a sign of respect and uh, to create peace in the house, a party must give. But both parties cannot have their way all the time. There has to be give and take. Sometimes this party has to give, sometimes this party has to give. Um, and that applies in any relationship. In any relationship, it has to be give and take. A parent has to know when to give, a parent has to know when to take. A parent has to know when to draw lines. So also, husband and wife also have to know when to give, when to take, when to draw lines. After all, it is a mutual agreement. You have to realize that marriage is a mutual agreement, and there has to be a mutual agreement on both sides. A person can't just push his way in and say dictate terms, that is impossible to have a harmonious relationship. There has to be given and taken both sides. The Me'iri, who is a Talmudic commentator, he said that wi- the husbands were urged to heed their wives' counsel with regard to all household affairs, especially the feeding and clothing of their sons and daughters. Uh, and that's, that is uh, the women know they have intuition on how to deal with those uh, things, Uh, For the sake of shalom bayit, for the sake of peace in the house. A husband whose parents had unjustly found fault with his wife is not required to please his parents by showing his agreement with them, thereby angering his wife. In other words, when it comes to honoring one's parents or having peace in the house, the peace in the house comes first. The in-laws and the outlaws should be kept away from the house. Um, And that's one of the causes we're going to discuss, one of the causes of problems in the house used to be in the olden days, especially the in-laws. Today it's much less so because people don't pay attention to their parents even when they're not married. So how much more so when they're married? Um, People move out of the house when they're young. But the Bible already said this many years ago when it talks about Adam and Eve. It says therefore a man will cling to his wife and be one flesh and leave his parents. It already talks about leaving one's parents, have to break the bonds, the familial bonds of uh, Parental relationships have to be broken in order to conduct a more important and more productive relationship with one's wife and husband so some people never know that some people are very tied to their parents even after marriage Um, they want to go and stay with their parents they want to stay with their husband Uh, let's go to my parents this this week let's go to my parents this week and the husband and wife hardly spend time together that's a very bad relationship So that's one of the keys also for Shalom Bayit so, the fifth commandment of honoring his parents he's even pushed aside for the sake of peace in the house Nachmanides there's this interesting mitzvah in the Torah which is a mitzvah which the Christians think they invented that is loving one's fellow man as oneself mm-hmm. you know they base themselves call themselves the religion of love but they don't know that the, this commandment is given to, to us uh, 2000 years before J.C. came along um, written in Leviticus in the book of Leviticus you will love your fellow man as oneself Nachmanides says this is referring specifically to one's wife. If one person cannot love his wife, who can they love? How can they love their fellow man who is distant from them? You can't love your own partner. How can one love one's fellow man? So we say this in the seven blessings under the chuppah. We talk about Rejoice! Re'im ahubim. Re'im of friends. Beloved friends the same word which is used in the verse which tells us to love our friend as ourself, is used under the chuppah, beloved friends, just like your Creator uh, made joyous the previous couple in the Garden of Eden, just like uh, God made Adam and Eve rejoice, so also we bless the couple who are getting married, you should find rejoicing amongst yourselves just like God made Adam and Eve rejoice. In the next blessing, we pray for shalom vereut, peace and friendship. So under the chuppah itself, we're praying. These are beautiful prayers, uh, seven blessings under the chuppah. We are praying for peace and harmony amongst the couple. Unfortunately, people don't know what to expect in marriage. It's interesting. The magic which is existing when people are dating quickly evaporate after marriage. How long does it last? Maybe six months. The euphoria maybe lasts six months, if you're lucky, a year. And if you're lucky, it goes right through till the end. But that's, uh, I don't know how usual it is today. If you judge by the amount of divorces, 50% are over. Um, Obviously, it doesn't last till the end. So where does the euphoria go? What happens to the euphoria? And the answer is, anyone who has bought a new car knows the most exciting time is the first week, the first month. Once you've had the car for it's a year... Looking on no. looking at someone else who just bought one. I um, thought uh, you No, at
1: me because of the problems I've had with my
0: car. No. no. It's time, Debbie. It's time. Um, <laughs> but anyone who has bought a new car knows the euphoria usually wears off. This applies to anything, any new article. Same thing. It's a new experience. A person gets married. It's euphoria. It's like acquiring something new. I have a new object now, a new object of my desires. My wife, my husband, I have something to look forward to when I go home. Euphoria, it's great, it's a great feeling the first six months, but unfortunately it wears off and it gets replaced with other emotions and uh, there's a tendency today which is a tendency of contemporary society which we're all guilty of, anyone who has bought paper plates is guilty of, it's called the throwaway syndrome. We're guilty now today of using things once and then throwing them away. So anyway, so I haven't, I don't, I don't uh, watch those programs, uh, Debbie. No, it's a book. Oh. Um, so anyway, so there is uh, this uh, tendency today of using things, and in Hebrew it's called chadpami, things which are created just for oneself. So we have this tendency today, we buy plates, we throw them away, cutlery, disposable, everything is disposable. We're living in the disposable era. I had an appliance, I bought an appliance the other day, took it back to the store to fix. He said, what, fix it? buy a new one, get a new one, or uh, replace it, it's not worth fixing. Today, appliances, small appliances, you buy a steam iron, no one's going to fix it for you, it costs $10, you throw it away and buy a new one. So we're living in a disposable society, and this idea is wearing off into other things as well. Today, people just don't have the patience. To mend it? Why mend it? I'll get a new one. And that's unfortunately, this has become the tendencies, don't fix it, why fix it? Let's throw it away. Let's do it something else. Let's get something new. Maybe we'll succeed a second time. People don't want to invest time and energy Had a case. Unfortunately, it's a very tragic case. Um, this couple were like one year married. They were married a year. The husband decides he's had enough. He walks out. She won't see him again. So she, he calls her. He says, I'll quit. He says, why? He says, well, we've been arguing every night since we got married. So what are we going to do about it? I don't want to do anything about it. That's it, I've had enough, I'm just taking off. So the, what? there's a major problem over here is people don't want to invest time and efforts and energy into repair. If something is worthwhile, uh, if someone has something which is very worthwhile, obviously you're not going to throw it away. You have an expensive automobile. You're not going to just throw it away and get rid of it and get a new one. You're going to try and fix it. 1st let's go for a fix. If you can't fix it, then we'll do something else. So a problem today is one of the problems we're facing is people either don't have the energy and they don't have the emotional strength. A lot of people don't have the emotional strength today. We're living in a very pressured society. It's pressure at work, pressure at home. I don't need too much hassle. I don't need the pressure at home. I don't need the pressure of trying to rebuild something. I'd rather get out of it. It's much easier to walk away today and stay in the pressure and try and make something out of it. Um, and the problem we see today is the, pro- the kids, it's not the parents. The parents are fine. They split up and they each lead their own lives. They may get depressed the first three months, but after that they recuperate, the problem is in the kids. The kids will never recuperate. A kid from a broken family never recuperates. In the back, there's a scar in the back of their mind. So unfortunately, that's one of the problems we're facing today. There are other problems which we're facing is that society has canonized the concept of unisex. Today, everything is unisex. you see a guy walking down the street, you don't know if it's a boy or a girl. You don't know who it is. So the ponytail, the jeans, and... You look from behind, and you yeah, who is it? Uh, you see the earring on the side, and it's still quandary. If you look at the front, um, then you can appreciate who is it now. So we have this concept of unisex. Um, people are rewriting the Bible with no references to God, male or female, it. Um, or the feminists have rewritten the Bible as she whatever but today it's mixed up totally from the Bible onwards. So anyway, so that's uh, so let's not get into the debate, Debbie. But I'm just I'm just giving the idea is everything can be inter- interwoven today. Everything can be interwoven today. We can change the sexes. There's unisex. Um, there's no separation. What is the problem which this has caused? Let's look at the problem. By contrast, the Torah clearly states that God created male and female. He created them. Plural, they're not, they're distinct beings. One is male, one is female, they're distinct be- beings. Equal and distinct. And this approach shows us how to react to things in general a specific assignment in raising children, individual roles in setting up a family. So each one has their role to play. The father is expected to be a bit on the stern side, the mother makes the discipline more palatable to the children. There's a concept in the Talmud of small dochev yamin mikarev, The left hand pushes and the right hand pulls. Because when you're dealing with someone who has a discipline problem, you have to know how to react with them. Overreacting with discipline is going to break them. They're going to run away. If you have the other side as well, the pulling side, so the father pushes, the mother pulls. This way, the child, when he has a problem, he goes to the mom. The father straightens him out discipline. He goes, Mom, my father shouted at me. What am I going to do? Mother said, don't worry. You sh- you'll get better. My father. Your father means well. He, but you need this two-way punch. You need uh, the kiss, the cuddle of the mother. You need the strict stricture of the father. Some houses, it's the other way around. But you always need this. In my household, it's the other way around because I'm hardly around. My wife has to be a, a strict disciplinarian. Otherwise, there'll be chaos. And uh, when I get home, I hear all the problems. <laughs> they come running to me, Dad, look what happened. And... Mom was shouting and this and that and the other. But uh, there has to be this allocation of roles in a successful household. Unfortunately, today, there's a growing willingness because of this unisex concept is, I can fulfill both concepts. I can be both the male and the female. I can be both the father and the mother. And this is caused to what is commonly called single-parent families. Indeed, there is a growing willingness among people raise children as a single parent with the attitude that parents are like kidneys. You can live with just one kidney. It's also, you can live with just one parent. So it does not take much thought to realize that this is an unhealthy trend. A single parent family will usually limit the optimum development of a child, which is best realized in the context of two parent families. We've done surveys on this. The most children with, with problems are children which come from broken homes percentage of children with problems is much greater. There are statistics. Um, Unfortunately, today, uh, we have problems in terms of delineating roles in society. The other problem we're facing is the growing self-centeredness and assertiveness. What's-in-it-for-me attitude? What do I gain by this relationship? And each party is looking, what is it in for me? Here I am, I'm slogging, I'm giving, I'm doing, I'm doing... What am I getting in return? So when people start thinking like that, they start looking for exit signs. I'm not getting enough out of this. If it's purely a business partnership and I'm not getting enough out of it, let's dissolve the partnership. So if people start looking at it in that sense, then everyone's examining it from their own perspective instead of thinking, you know, what can I do for the other one? Which brings us back to the idea of what is love, which we discussed already in a previous lecture. I'll just touch on it uh, later on. The main cause of divorce in a normal household is the absence of peace in the house. But changing attitudes has made this more common. After all, any bright person could earn a living, and between restaurants and take-out foods, convenience, appliances, and maid services, each one can get along without the other. So today, it's quite easy to get along with a single person. Isn't it quite comfortable to be single today? people over here are single it's very comfortable Is it comfortable? some people can deal with it some people can't some people are used to a married life i'm sure you're used to it um it's hard to get adjusted to be single on the other hand people who are single are managing quite well it's very convenient you get home whenever you want you do whatever you want no one tells you what to do there's no giving there's no taking there's just uh, self-centeredness and that's it doesn't have to worry about themselves and that's it um so that's the problem today, which we're living in. It's climate of our times. There's a tremendous amount of percentage of singles amongst the Jewish community, more than average. More people remain single to longer. Why? Because the Jewish community, especially up, upward mobile, people want to succeed in their fields. people want to succeed in their fields before they want to get married. I want to be a successful lawyer, doctor, pharmacist, or whatever I want to be, before I think of marriage. I want to be there. I want to be 27, 28. I want to be successful before I even think of starting getting married. And the longer a person delays it, the more set a person is in their views, and the harder it gets. So unfortunately, there's a perception of being short-changed in marriage. The partner feels, if I were really loved, he or she would be more considerate. He or she is taking advantage of me, and I'm the loser. This unfortunately leads to an adversarial atmosphere of arguments and fights, with this one trying to hurt the other one more and more, and that's really the recipe for a breakdown. Oh, she said this to me, I'm going to say something worse. He does this to me, I'm going to show him who's the boss. I'm going to teach this guy a lesson. So the result is two wounded adults with children worse off than orphans. An orphan is better off than this kind of atmosphere. An orphan is better off than a person who's gone through a divorce with their parents. Why? An orphan at least knows their parent passed away and the other parent loved them. So in his heart he knows there was love at home. And they talk about the other partner, how I miss them, the child feels at least there was love, there was something there, something stable over there. A person who's been through a divorce, a kid, What's going on in the background? Each one of the parties is fighting for the mind of the kid. Oh, your mother is no good. Don't come and stay with me. Oh, your father, is a deadbeat. He's a terrible person. hes a, He used to beat me. He used to beat you. He used to... So there's a fighting going on for the mind of the child. The, mind of the child is completely confused. I've seen so many of those cases where my heart bleeds for the children. It's a terrible situation. So that child ends up with no real parents because his parents are each one putting down the other one. that's one of the problems which we're facing there are general th- generally three ways to hurt someone in the marriage let's talk about the negative and then we'll talk about the positive one way is physical abuse which is the most basic uh, which really applies for people with low intelligence I think that you can see this I think it's more common I'm not sure if the statistics bear me out but I'd say it's more common amongst people who are blue collar workers to come along and just that's what they're used to I know I know I'm talking about percentages I'm not talking about um, where you find it. I'm sure you find it everywhere. I'm talking about in terms of percentage-wise, I'm sure the blue-collar workers are more physical and therefore they'd have more of a physical solution to their problems. So that's the most common way is, unfortunately, is simply by physically striking the other person. For the statistics, I saw mind-boggling statistics in Israel. 100,000 abused women in Israel. like that. Tremendous amounts. Jerusalem Post. There's more and more articles in Jerusalem Post regarding this problem. Unfortunately, it's a violent society. You have to deal, you have to be in the army, everyone's in the army, 18 years old, you're in the army, you're you're put up in violent situations, and people react violently. And the pressure, great pressures, people get to react violently. It's a major problem today. So whether the man or the woman is the aggressor is immaterial. In Jewish law, if someone raises a hand to strike someone, they're considered wicked. In Jewish law, it's interesting, in a court of law, Certain categories of people would be considered not valid to give testimony. One of the categories is someone who raises his hand on someone else. How many people would this invalidate straight away? I raise my hand to strike someone without even striking, I'm invalid to be a witness in a Jewish court of law. If I'm a gambler, I'm invalid to be a witness in a Jewish court of law. Like you if, if you go to AC.
1: No, well you're a kid, you're a hey, kid. Siblings. You're
0: a kid, you're a kid. Hopefully we can't hold that against them. <laughs> um, the person who's repented already, we don't hold that against them. But a the person who's still carrying on abuse, he believes mm-hmm. abuse is the only method, He's not valid for, sorry, he's not valid for testimony of the court. Atlantic City is totally forbidden. Totally forbidden for a Jew to go and gamble is totally against the concepts of Judaism. So um, there's two issues over here. The first issue is, as you mentioned, Gamblers Anonymous. It's a parasitical way of life. Even if the guy is winning or if he's losing, it can cause him to rob and steal. How many people end up in the poorhouse because of this? Okay, that's the first. The first issue is okay. The first issue is that issue of um, being parasitical, living off uh, gains which are uh, not totally valid. You didn't do anything for it. I mean. The second...
1: Do
0: <laughs> you think so? you think so, Debbie? Um, yeah. Oh, there are plenty out there. It's very, very, very... very uh, there are out there, I can uh, see you've never been an entrepreneur, Debbie. I am an entrepreneur right now. And how hard is it? How easy is it for you? I'm not talking
1: about small okay. I'm talking
0: about... Still hard.
1: Still hard. I'm uh, talking about I'm uh, sure uh, Donald Trump has a lot
0: of worries and troubles. Yeah, he has a lot of worries, but he also has a lot of money. Okay. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so let's not let's not get sidetracked. Let's I not mean, get sidetracked I into I, I an issue. So you asked me a question. Let's go back to the questions. So that's one issue. The second issue is the second issue is about gambling is um, even a person just gambles just once in a while. Uh, when I gamble, I have no intention of losing my money. Why do people gamble? They gamble in order to win. You didn't have that intention; you'd be an idiot to gamble. you would be an idiot to gamble. The dreidel business is just once once a year. That's just yeah, a game. But no, 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 no. Anyway, even the dreidel business—I'm not saying the rabbis sanction it. It's a custom which is mm-hmm. not really sanctioned by the rabbis. Um,
1: you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right.
0: Okay. But it's fun. It's a sorry, let me just answer your question. Let me just answer your question, David. There's two issues over here. Number one is. When a person gambles, they gamble in order to win. So, therefore, the rabbi said, it says it's considered a form of robbery by taking the other person's winnings. He doesn't really want to let go of it. He's giving it unwillingly. It's a form of robbery. It's a rabbinical form of robbery. It may not be robbery from the Torah. Technically, when you put your money in the pot, you really want to win. That's the only reason why. So that's why many rabbis have come out against lotteries, have come out against uh, gambling, any kind of gambling. The Talmud talks about racing pigeons in those days. And uh, racing horses would fall in the same category. And those kind of people are also forbidden to be witnesses in a Jewish court of law. because mm-hmm. it's, c- it's a bad thing. We don't encourage that kind of behavior. It's a vice which can lead to other things.
1: Right. How is, what do they do so that was the other question. What the c- they do and
0: that called? question is, bingo is a different category. Why? Because when you go to bingo, what you buy is you buy the card you're not really giving the money to gamble, you're actually getting something in return. Yeah. So that's one form. The second thing <laughs> is the second thing is when you're, when you're gambling, okay, when you're gambling for a charity, you don't mind losing. When you go there and you know it's a charitable event, yeah. there you mind. Yeah. No, I mean, when I okay, anyway, so that's... I think if I, you know, most of the time I, I expect that I'm not going to win. You expect you're not gonna gonna win, so you're going so to win, so... To, to, to the state, to, to, to the to state. state. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Okay. so anyway, so let's uh, let's keep on. Okay. So the first uh, kind of uh, problem is mm-hmm. physical abuse. The second kind of problem is verbal abuse. And that's um, verbal abuse. The Talmud says a person can pay physical compensation. You can pay compensation for physical abuse, but you can never take back a bad word. Well, it's in a court of law. You've got a court of law and uh, they can assess how much damages there were, but assessing verbal damage is very hard to assess. Psychological damage is something people can't see. It's very hard to assess, and therefore it's psychological damage sometimes can be worse than physical damage. Um, so that's another problem in terms of marriage. Two people stay together, live together. Sometimes they get on each other's nose. Um, people who have Dormed in the same room with someone in college may know what it's like. Dorm with someone over and over again. I know. I, I went. Uh, my favorite first cousin. I went on a trip with him to Scotland for a week. When we came back, we weren't talking to each other. <laughs> that was. That was. Thank God it was before I got married, so I knew already. You know what I have in store. Uh, everything is ups and downs, and the common factor is people get sick of each other. You're, together, you're Living together. You stay in the same same room as each other. You're on each other's nerves. People have bad habits. You know, once I was giving a class about you know, how people sometimes fight about how they squeeze the tube of toothpaste. Mm-hmm. Ever heard of that? Oh,
1: sure.
0: What? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought I was only joking. but uh, no, Okay, no, so that's no, it. So that's pretty 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 it. So that's yeah. They take these stupid things that people make big issues out of. That's something, a successful marriage, people have to know how to overlook certain things. Everyone has bad habits. Some people snore. What are you going to do? you Are going to walk out the next day? Some people have the habit of snoring. What can you do? You have to learn how to live. You have to accept the good, accept the bad. How many times can you mention it? You can mention it once, twice, the third time already is too many times. It's going to get on the other person's nerves. Right? So some things you've got to accept and um, other things, if there's something you can do. The best way of treating these things is to make a joke out of them make a laugh, a bit of a laugh, both of us to have a joke about it. We can both laugh about it. You know, last night I couldn't sleep a wink, you know. <laughs> you were snoring again, it's so funny, you know, you're snoring again and uh, try and get a laugh out of the other party. Say it in a nice way, person's got to know how to communicate. Just like the relationship in between employees. How do you relate to work with employees? Uh, you get along somehow, you know you have to get along, you're in the same business. You know you have to get along, there has to be mutual respect. It's also in a marriage, there has to be mutual respect, and people have to know how to get along, and that's mainly, uh, the problems are mainly losing control. People get angry, people lose control, they say things and they do things, which they later regret. The person's got to learn how to control their impulses and how to know not to say anything in the heat of the moment. You've got to know, this is the heat of the moment, I'm getting angry, let me just control myself and calm down. I'll say something, maybe a couple of days later. I'll say something maybe a week later. I'm not going to raise the issue now because I'm out of control. So those are the problems uh, which we have to uh, discuss. So those are the problems which we have to discuss. But what are the ingredients for a successful marriage? The opposites of these things, the main ingredients really are love. One of the ingredients is love. What is love? As we mentioned before, love is giving. Love is being classified in Jewish law as giving. The more a person gives to someone, that's what creates this bond of love. Where do we see this? Who loves who more? The parents or the children. When we answered this question before. We said the parents love the child more. Why do the parents love their children more? Because the parents are the ones who are giving. So also it's also the partner who has invested the most in the relationship by giving the most is the one who loves the other one more. The partner who has been the one who's taking doesn't feel any loss. Why? I didn't give, I didn't invest. It's just like we brought the analogy of a person who invested in stock. We said the first stock a person looks at in the papers is usually the stock he's invested in. They don't normally look at the other stocks. First, you go to the stocks the first invested in. The mutual fund a person has bought is the mutual fund which catches the eye. Then they look at other things. Why? There's investment. There's something at stake over here. It's also, people have a stake in the marriage. They've invested over so many years. It's hard to walk away from it. It's one of the. It's one of the things which people, you know, people have something at stake. They've invested. You've invested five years of your life, ten years of your life. The more a person has invested, it becomes much harder and harder to walk away from. They've been through many pains and agonies together. Go through trials and tribulations. That's an investment. It's something which causes a great deal of mutual comfort. We've been through this together, we've conquered this together, we've invested together, we've raised children together. It's a great investment. And now we should reap the benefits of this together. So um, investing together is love. That's what we explain love. So love is giving and not taking. The second ingredient for a successful marriage is mutual respect. And this is a problem today, not only in marriages, but in any family, the concept of respect for authority is being lost in society today. Um, you can see this in the family units where the children, the way they talk to their parents. Mom, I want this. I want uh, fish and chips tonight for dinner, whatever it is. I come from England. That was uh, the comment. Uh, uh, I want this. I want that. I need, I need trousers. I need you to stitch my pants. What kind of respect is there? Is the mother just a servant? He tells the father, you know, um, whatever something. He gives the uh, instructions. That is not the way to talk to one's spirits. Unfortunately, that starts from the home. It continues in the school, where there's, you know. I used to be in school in England. When my teacher walked in, the whole class had to stand up. Huh? Still today? I don't know. Maybe it used to be, but not. I don't think anymore. Twenty years ago, 20 years ago. okay. Twenty years ago is a long time. We're seeing the product now of the second generation. And
1: problem children, the the don't
0: right. respect the children uh, Well, they part have of the problem is... Children a way for them to get... they pick up what you give them. Also, the problem is that parents don't expect respect. They don't demand respect. You have to demand respect to get respect. When I was in school, the masters demanded respect. Well, if you didn't walk in, if you didn't stand up when the master walked in, there was hell to pay. They demanded it. It was part of the rules uh, of being in school. Another thing, we would never refer to our teachers by first name, similarly with parents. It's forbidden in Jewish law to call one's parent by the first name, because then you're lowering the parent to a friend. A parent has got to be friendly, but a parent is not a friend. Not on the f- uh, it shouldn't be demoted to the level of, yeah, he's a pal. Yeah, just like I shadow my pals, I'll shadow my parents. That's today, that's been become the norm parents are today the pals therefore children think of them as pals so just like I treat my pals sometimes good, sometimes bad I shout at them, scream at them, fight with them I can fight and do the same thing with my parents parents are going to demand a minimum amount of respect unfortunately parents today don't demand it this demand of respect has also been in a marriage both parties have to demand a minimal amount of respect first it calls for a certain amount of self-respect and then when a person's self-respect and the other party senses it my wife has self-respect. I would never touch her. Why? Because I know that if I did, there'd be hell to pay. She respects herself, and she demands it. She demands this minimum of self-respect. So that's one of the problems today: is people don't understand these guidelines of respect and honor. Um, I was just talking to someone just now, just just before the class. He told me of an incident in his family where a kid was brought up with no sense of respect. The kid was spoiled totally, spoiled brat. He grew up, he mixed with bad company, he got arrested. So what happened? He got arrested by the police, he socks the policeman. So it says five policemen beat him up. They beat him up totally. He was in uh, black and blue, uh, they bruised him totally. He end up in jail. The father said, I want to buy each one of them a gift. Because they taught him a lesson which I failed. I failed miserably in teaching Whereas this kid was brought up with no respect at all. He thought he could get away with everything. And that's one of the problems today. It's so the same thing in the marriage. If he can get away with it with his parents, you get away with it in school, get away with it in marriage as well. I can do whatever I want. I don't respect the other party. And that's it. That's one of the problems. One rabbi said, he said, if a person would treat his partner with one-tenth of the courtesy they treated them as fiancés, they'd have successful marriages. <laughs> just like uh, when a person is dating, they treat the other party with respect and courtesy if you want to carry on the dating process with that person you definitely want to treat them properly and respect and courtesy and show them the best face so that if one tenth of that was invested in marriages they'd all be successful so that's something which we, we take you know a person doesn't even think about respect mutual respect there has to be mutual respect one of the ingredients of failure of marriages is lack of respect to the other party oh she's an idiot oh he is no good he doesn't he doesn't work that's grounds that's a ground for failure of force the third problem we have is a lack of unity in marriage. People have got to realize that now we are a partnership. We represent one company. We can't go around as if we are separate units now. We're in this together. Um, I think I mentioned the story of a rabbi whose wife's leg was painting. Aryeh Levien. There's a book It's called The Tzaddik in Our Time. Very interesting book you can get hold of. Ari he, 11, uh, he went to the, the doctor with his wife. And he told the doctor, he says, our leg is paining us. The doctor says, what? What does that mean? What's going on over here? He says, yes, our leg is paining us. And he pointed to his wife's foot. So in marriage, there's no she and he, and it's us. People have got to gotta realize, if we drill a hole in the boat, we're both going to sink. It's so not like I'm hurting her, and then she's hurting me. But I hurt her, I hurt us. That's what a person's got to realize. The feeling of unity is a very, very important feeling. So again, that's one of the major causes of downfall of the family is people losing this concept. It's me and it's him. Or it's me and it's she. we are both separate. She does this to me, I do this to her. What they forget is they're harming the unit. The unit is suffering as a whole. Just like in a business partnership, if they value each other's partnership, they're not going to start insulting each other and fighting with each other because they know the business is going to suffer so also the person has going to realize is that this is a unity and we're in this together and we have to make this unity a success so that's one of the problems again in today's society where we're individuals and individuality is uh, praised we're a society of individuals individuality is praised I dress my way and uh, I, if I don't dress my way I'm conforming if I'm conforming it's not good and therefore, in a marriage also, we expect to be individuals. We don't want to be harnessed. We don't want to be tied up. And that's what people talk, to, talk about today. Like, if I'm in a marriage, I'm in a prison. Um, I was watching my kids, the Flintstones, the other day. And uh, it showed a, a sketch of Fred being a magician. And he was a magician. And his wife was poking fun at him, joker a magician. He said, OK, what do you have over here? You ha- I have a cabinet. If you walk in, you're going to disappear. So she walks in, just make make a. Today's topic is uh, Shalom Bayit. Shalom Bayit means peace in the house. Peace is the last thing we pray for in our daily prayers. Every day when we pray, the last thing we mention is Oseh Shalom those, the one who makes peace in the high places. who Ya say Shalom Aleinu, He will make peace upon us. Kol Israel the and on all Israel and let us say Amen. That's how we end off our prayers every day, three times a day. That's also how we end off the Birgit Amazon, the grace after meals. Also, we finish with a prayer for peace. Peace has been one of the primary values in Judaism. It's a Very, very important uh, value. It's also the prophecy for the end of days. The prophecy for the end of days is, the wolf will live with the lamb. There's going to be peace amongst the nations, the united nations have got the isaiah wall in uh, in new york outside the united nations plaza you have the wall of isaiah where isaiah was one of the jewish prophets predicting peace in the end of days So peace is a tremendous value the israelis today are willing to give up everything for peace they just want peace they've had enough of war so peace is a supreme value Jewish tradition visualizes God as seeking peace in the heavenly spheres between Israel and the nations and especially between husband and wife. The Torah regards a person who establishes peace in his house as a person who has peace in his dominion. So Peace is a primary function. Domestic harmony is prescribed by the rabbis in the Talmud. Talmud says a very interesting idea says a person should spend less than his means on clothes, beyond his means in honoring his wife and children. So a person, a man on himself, should spend less than his means on his wife and children, should spend more than his means. So then he has to listen to her. (laughs) The constant insistence upon the value of the family as a social unit, for the propagation of domestic and religious values, and the significant fact that the accepted Hebrew word for marriage is kiddushin. Kiddushin means sanctification. When a person gets married, it's called kiddushin, which means sanctification. Where is holiness in Jewish law? And the answer is holiness is in the home. Today, why is Judaism failing miserably? And the answer is because we transfer the holiness from the home into the synagogue. So in the home, anything goes. you want to be religious, go to synagogue. Whereas the opposite really is true, the holiness is the home. The home is the bulwark of holiness uh, for Jews, and today, right, we talk about a, tr- a home which is based on truth, is based on faith. Um, when we talk to a married couple, that is what we bless them with: that they should build a home based on truth and on faith. So the home really is this basic building block of society. And today, in America, we mentioned less than 25% of all uh, households are traditional nuclear units of husband and wife and children, less than 25% today. That's a falling number, and that's one of the causes for great concern that the society is going to fall apart. The Fabrics of society is going to fall apart. In The Jewish way of life, the family was always considered the minor building block of society. If the family units were strong, you could assume the the society was strong. If the family unit was weak, you can assume the society is falling apart around us. The home is also a major factor for moral purity. If two people are faithful to each other, that's a great source of moral purity. The rabbis say that where there is peace between husband and wife, God dwells between them. So a lot of spirituality in the home comes from the fact that there is peace and harmony in the home and something tangible a person can feel when there's goodwill on both sides, if you go into the house, you feel good. You feel, you feel at peace with oneself. But there's fighting, constant fighting and bickering. There's no peace for anyone, and there can be no spirituality as well without peace. Perhaps the strength of the family bond is seen most in the fact that among Jews, and it's always been the case, divorce is one of the easiest procedures. It's interesting. From the earliest of times, The Torah prescribes a mitzvah of divorce. Very strange. Uh, We're talking about 3,500 years ago, written into the five books of Moses. It says when a man decides to divorce his wife for a certain reason, he'll write her a book of kritut, of cutting off, cutting the bonds, and give it to her hand, and that's it. That's the whole ceremony. It's a very easy ceremony. 13 lines have got to be written down. It takes about half an hour to write. Let's give it into her hand, and that's it. It's over, the bond is over. Okay, but technically it's a very easy, all you have to do is her name, his name, and the place. That's it, three things. And then you can write it, it can takes half an hour to write.
1: This, this okay.
0: That's geography, everyone knows geography. Yes, you had a question? Um, but in, the, in terms of Torah law, in terms of Torah law, it's a very easy procedure. It's a very, very simple procedure. Um, so that's one of the ironies of the fact is, in Jewish law, it's a very easy procedure. Today, with all the civil law and with all the harassments of going to the lawyers and paying the bills, it's a, it's a tremendously difficult procedure. It uh, wears down the nerves. But technically, in Jewish law, if we just go by religious law, it's meant to be a very simple procedure. Just a matter of a document given into a uh, transfer of a document, just like marriage is a transfer of a ring. So also divorce in Judaism is the transfer of a document. Right, just like the ring in the wedding has to be given and received. So also divorce is no—it's just the same. Backwards, we're, re- we're releasing the marriage ties. We're doing a similar procedure by releasing and releasing the marriage ties. So even though it was one of the easiest processes, in practice, it was until recent times a rarity. Even though really technically it's so easy, in practice it very rarely happened. We're talking about a rarity, and the answer is because the bond was deeper and harder to break. And we're going to discuss what makes the bond so easy to break today, and we're going to discuss how society has changed. I'm going to discuss that in the course of uh, this class. The view that great is peace that reigns between husband and wife has legal and moral consequences as well. It's interesting, there's a big debate amongst the philosophers: Is a lie absolutely wrong, or is a lie something which is a lesser evil? In Jewish law, it's interesting. We find a classic example is in the Bible. The Bible talks about God promising Sarah a son. She was 90 years old. Actually, she was 89. She had a child when she was 90. And Sarah says, laughed, and she says, "How can I have a child? My husband is too old?" she's blaming it on the virility of her husband so God goes to Abraham and says, Abraham, why did your wife laugh and say that she was too old so God himself changes the wording of what happened for the sake, the rabbis say for the sake of peace between husband and wife as a person is allowed we see to tell a lie for the sake of peace between husband and and wife there's an interesting midrash the midrash talks about Aaron the high priest why was he chosen as high priest because everyone loved him He was a very likable person. He made peace between man and his fellow man. How? He says, if he saw two people fighting, the day after he would go to one of them and say, You know, the other party is very sorry he did this to you, and he wants to make friends with you. And then he would go to the other party and say the same thing. Total lie, total fabrication. For the sake of peace, a person is allowed to tell a lie. So it has great legal and moral foundations. We tell a person, You're allowed to tell a lie for the sake of peace. OK, so for the sake of peace, for the sake of peace, I don't think they based it on this Talmud, but, uh,
1: <laughs> 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 they, knew but they had a
0: different logic, different kind of logic. The Russians are good liars anyway, but uh, they go, they'll tell lies they for anything. anything. OK. <laughs> the practice of lighting candles on Friday night. We you know the source. The source is a, a ruling to create a p- sense of peace and harmony in the house. In those days, they never had electric lights. A uh, person had to spend money, great deal of money. In those days, people were poor. To have a candle was a sign of wealth already. People had to invest in a candle once a week. People would go to bed when it got dark. They couldn't afford lights. They couldn't afford oil. The Rabbis made a institute with this law of buying oil for Friday night. Why? Want to have peace and harmony. If there's no light in the house, it might cause fights. People might trip over things. Be in a bad mood. Can't see anyone. I'm in a bad mood. They made this law of lighting candles on Friday night. People don't know the source of these laws. The source is based on harmony in the house. The, idea is the only reason is for Shalom Bayit, um, expressly for the purpose of promoting an atmosphere of warmth and peace in a holy day. The Talmud queries, where there are insufficient funds to light both the Hanukkah candles and the Shabbat candles. So a person has limited resources he, d- he doesn't have enough money to buy both the Hanukkah candles and the Shabbat candles. Which one takes precedence? And the answers: the Shabbat candles take precedence. Why? Because Shabbat candles are there for promoting peace, whereas the Hanukkah candles just symbolize a miracle which happened many years ago. So peace, we find, is one of the staple uh, ingredients for a uh, family unit. And there's a ritual which is a very strange ritual which appears to us to be a very strange ritual the, to- the Torah mentions of a man who suspects his wife of infidelity what happens? So, in, in Jewish law there's a whole section in the Bible which deals with this case a man suspects his wife of infidelity, uh, he suspects her with good reason, without good reason, the marriage is falling apart so the Torah tells us, you write the Kohen writes God's name on a piece of paper puts it into some liquid, and the woman drinks it. If she is innocent, she will have a child from her husband within a year. Guaranteed. But what happens? God's name is erased. By doing this, put God's name in the liquid. It's the third commandment, of the ten commandments, not to erase God's name, not to take God's name in vain,